Welcome to Data and Dev. We're your hosts, Melissa and John. Join us as we cover the broad landscape of technology through interviews and analogy. I'm super excited for today's episode. I do realize I think I say that every time, but I always mean it, so I always say it. Anyway, today we chat with Aaron Blum and Raphael Poss. Both work in security at Cockroach Labs. You can check out the links in the show notes for a background on both of our guests, as well as Cockroach Labs. Our guests will introduce themselves in a minute, uh, but Cockroach Labs is a distributed database company, and they're doing some really neat things in the field of databases. I promise the content of this interview is more interesting than it sounds. If you have ever considered what a career in tech security might look like, this is a don't miss episode. If you've never had that thought and never will have that thought, I promise you will still walk away with an appreciation for just some of what goes into securing the systems that we use on the internet every day. These are two of the guys that are doing that securing. Enjoy. So we have with us today, Raphael Post and Aaron Blum, both from Cockroach Labs, which we'll hear about shortly. I love the name and their logo is pretty cool too. Um, we are very thankful for their time today. They're gonna talk to us about security and databases and how the two are connected and, and special considerations that databases need to give for security. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Aaron, we can start with you. When we hear the term uh, security, it's uh, it can can mean many things to many different people. So, um, and it, it can be kind of a broad term. So, what does security mean uh, when when we're talking about the kind of tech that you're working on with with databases? So, I could run to the textbook definition, the whole CIA triad, but in reality, we're looking to warehouse data and we're looking to keep that data safe and available. Um, integrity, I think, goes with the territory. If you have a database and it doesn't have good data integrity, you don't really have a database. So security focuses more on those first two for us, um, specifically the availability and you know confidentiality about that. It's a very interesting space because as things go more global and more web, you're looking to secure more perimeters. And it's a very different problem from what it was even a decade ago, because it used to be the database was inside a walled fortress you know, within the data center, within the, the network, and now it's much, much more open. So there are more different things to try to secure than there used to be. So it's a much broader topic. That makes sense. And how did you get into uh, the field of security? Kind of what's your background and, and what do you do currently? So I've always been a tinkerer. I like to poke systems and understand their rules and where they could be bent and broken. Um, which lent me towards more of the security things before there was a formal uh, path of study. Um, and so once more formal routes of study showed up, I gravitated towards them, but I also found myself more often either fixing or finding flaws within systems that needed to be fixed for my customers and my clients. So it's, I've sort of been close to that space for a long time before it was formally recognized. That's interesting. And when I hear the term security, it feels like such a big umbrella term. Um, I kind of know what it means, but I don't kind of know what it means. And if somebody were wanting to go that route, are there specific career trajectories? Talk to somebody who's, who's, who says, ooh, that sounds interesting. What do I need to know to pursue a career down that path? 
Start with your passion. Uh, for me, it, there were a couple of things that were very interesting and I dug deep into them and understood them. And I don't just mean from a security perspective. In order to understand how to break software um, and secure software, you need to know how software is built. So you know, don't skimp on the basics. Don't be afraid of learning to code. Maybe it's not a glorious language. You know, maybe, maybe it's not the most fashionable language of late, but find one that works for you, learn the fundamentals, and then you can go deeper because you have that basic understanding. I think that's, that's a great point. And to, to put a little specifics on that, what, um, is there a particular languages that you think are, are more prevalent than others uh, in that field? I think that anything that is quick and scrappy that can get you up and working is useful. Um, languages like Python, um, they're lightweight. They have a lot of modules and libraries that you can just off the shelf and there's a lot of published information about them, but they also abstract you away from the way the machine does things. So a good crunchy language will help you if you wanna go deep within a system. If you're not interested in going deep within a system, it's not as big a deal, but languages like Go will teach you a lot if you learn the language about how a computer also works. So it's, it's a trade-off, but if you're interested in going deep, find a language that does that. Crunchy language, I really like that. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but I'm, I'm gonna use that. Um, so when it comes to kind of the day-to-day, -day, either what you do specifically or what different security professionals might do, what does that look like? So my day-to-day -day is a little bit frenetic right now. Um, so I'm, I'm the lead and alone security engineer at Cockroach today, which we're actively working on addressing. Uh, so I touch product security things. So that's, you know, how are we gonna make the product secure? I've worked with Raphael on improving our TLS experience within CockroachDB. I've worked with our cloud team on improving the defense and depth for that system. But I also field incidents off of the um, production cloud system in addition to our corporate environment. So if a laptop gets infected, we have run books, but if there's something weird about that infection or we need to con you know, contain the blast damage, um, I get pulled in and I get to help with that. So I am first and foremost a generalist, which helps there, uh, but that's also not a sustainable position to be in, which is why we're staffing aggressively. It sounds like you are the beeper guy all the time. Are you like constantly on, on beeper duty? Right now we have a temporary uh, unsustainable rotation of two. Um, we're looking to have that within the next three months out to about six people. So we have a real rotation. This is not common and not optimal. And we're aware of that. Uh, a more traditional security role would not be on call like this. It's, this is special for us for right now. I gotta say with the, with the, as you're, you know, I mean, in, in, in our own ways in, in uh, Spectrum, we have uh, those growing pains where sort of you, you kind of reach beyond your capacity and then sort of catch up uh, a little bit afterwards. But um, I, I, one thing I wanted to follow up on was uh, you, you mentioned um, that, you know, you, you, I think you kind of called yourself a, a generalist but that's not always the best fit. I, I wonder if you could elaborate, you know, I think especially for people that might be looking to get into this, they might, they might have that question about how specific should they be or how general they could be, should be. Um, so I call myself a generalist, but I have depth of knowledge in several distinct areas. So there are some things that I know very well, um, but there are many, many things that I do not. So that breadth of knowledge is very useful, especially in situations like I am in today. Um, but there are still some things that I know that I'm good at and I like. They're aligned with the things I'm passionate about um, and I stay sharp in them as best I can. If you just go, you know, a quarter inch deep and a 10 mile wide, you know, understanding, that's, 
that's useful for passing tests, that's useful for getting certifications, but that's not as practical or applicable in, in the real world. Have something that you know you can do and can do well, and then that generalist bend will allow you to be more effective in that vertical and also help in other spaces. One thing that comes to mind is is sort of you know the idea of uh, of known unknowns, right? So you you I think if I can like sort of paraphrase that you you want to be at least be aware of these different uh, aspects of of the career of, of the job, but you you know but you have a depth of skill in particular areas, which I could see if you were on a team, then you can sort of complement each other. You you know where all the skill sets lie, but you each have your particular niches that you that you excel at absolutely for the look for the place you are now in your career again for somebody kind of coming up how important do you think a formal degree is versus any kind of self-study that can get you passing the certifications and, and getting those uh, licenses so I'm biased because I went the formal degree route not in security per se but in like crunchy computer science so I have a theoretical comp sci degree and I loved it but I was gonna love that regardless of whether it landed me a job. So that's my bias uh, from the front. Depending on what type of security work you're interested in doing, the, it's as varied as the backgrounds that you can bring to it. If you want to go deep within the way that systems can be secured, that formal education is helpful, but not necessary. If you can find another way to develop that understanding of those systems, and I have met many folks who don't have anything beyond like some years of high school, who have that understanding of the way that the systems interact, that's all you need to be able to do that. And I think that tech is increasingly welcoming to folks with interesting backgrounds. We do a blind resume process or a resume blind process here at Cockroach. So when I interview candidates, we evaluate them based on how they react to the prompt and how they solve the problems they're presented with. And we have no knowledge of their background. I think that's becoming more common. And I really like that because while I had that formal degree, I also had a fairly unconventional background in other places, and that probably would have counted against me in a traditional interview process. That's helpful to hear. Um, Raphael, coming from probably a little bit of a different angle within your role in Cockroach, what are your thoughts on traditional degrees versus self-study? It's funny you should ask. Um, not only do I have a degree, but I even taught at the university. And so um, I am also very biased in that way. But the more interesting contribution I have to this conversation is uh, from all the people I've met who have uh, started their career without a formal education, because I found that very important in my academic career to understand what makes someone successful and all the ways where university is actually not that useful and perhaps uh, um, could be reformed as well. Um, See, uh, the truth of the matter is that when I look at software engineering nowadays, it's very popular field with a lot of people who are um, looking at it as a way to uh, elevate their status, especially economic status in many areas. And um, there are many formulas that have started to be optimized for to uh, bring someone to that point where they can have a job and uh, have a good income. And what I notice is that many of the trajectories that are now available to people who do not go through traditional uh, education programs are optimized to deliver results that are valuable to companies who want to employ software engineers. And that is shaping up people who uh, into people into problem solving uh, mentality and the ability to communicate well, to understand problem statements that are vague and shape them up into something that is actionable into programming activity. However, 
these programs and these uh, outcomes are not optimizing for deep understanding of the kinds that Aaron was referring to earlier. Even so, I am 100% behind Aaron's opinions that many of the most successful security people in, our, in the tech industry do not have a formal education and probably would not have needed it. It is not an easy statement to make that anyone who is going to go to an alternate trajectory to become a software engineer would make a good security person. And that difference lies in both the ability and the desire uh, to switch away from problem-solving mentality into analysis mentality. And that is that the way to get there is a combination of uh, curiosity about how systems work, uh, many hours of self-study, and an ability also to break systems. And not in the sense of making illegal things happen, but more in the sense of uh, subverting the primary purpose of a machine, a computer, a software system, and making it do different things that were not designed for. And the ability to understand that the tool actually doesn't exist for the only purpose of doing the function it was designed for, and that there are many other functions that it can be uh, used for. And that kind of, of um, uh, transcending the, the, the software activity, or even hardware in some cases, is, um, is uh, what I call the tinkerer's mind. And that is something that I found from an educator perspective, it's not easy to cultivate. It's much harder to cultivate than just training someone to become a good problem solver. So either you have it from, from, from nature or it needs a lot of additional self-study. Uh, on the point of, of self-study, are there particular resources that, that maybe you, you have found particularly helpful uh, to, to finding content to kind of stay sharp or to broaden your your uh, your knowledge of security? There, there are two routes, I would say. I mean, Aaron probably knows more about this, um, but it's the two routes I know of personally are the, um, the, the, the white route and the black route. <laughs> Sometimes you can mix them to get the gray route as well. Um, so white route is to go through um, online websites that are captures a flag quests like sequences of exercises that are secure security oriented some of them are available on public websites that are like uh, run by hobbyists and some are actually run by governments um, for uh, hiring for preparing people to get hired for government uh, services and these are very good activities to, to get trained. And there are also certain books with also exercises in those books, um, if someone is uh, comfortable reading. And then the, another activity that I think is very practical and also very approachable, many cities beyond certain size have work spaces, work labs, um, community spaces where people can go and do programming activities or computer activities together with other people. And many of those spaces have a population of people who are security-minded and then it becomes a community of peers where information can be exchanged and, and uh, suggestions can be made about exercises or activities that would promote this uh, expertise. Uh, that's the white route. And the, the, the black route is, uh, is uh, breaking systems, like uh, actively searching both uh, with personal equipment and online equipment ways to subvert systems to do things that they were not designed for. Uh, especially in all the ways that uh, that are neither documented or in some cases not desirable. And then there are ethical ways to do this study, and then there are less ethical ways to do these studies. But when it comes to educational outcomes, both are equally good. 
I, I can I see um, on, on the, the white route, I see like uh, a little bit of a parallel there, um, hopefully not straining the analogy too much, but uh, um, like from my data science background, you, you have like Kaggle, I think is, is a good source for challenges and ways to connect to a team to, to test out your skills and uh, compete with others and, and kind of uh, iron sharpening iron there. So it sounds like that there's there's um, there's communities like that for um, for uh, going through exercises like that to, to train those skills. Okay, so to go out of order a moment from a, a traditional uh, interview scope here, I, I think I skipped the what is your background for both of you. So can you both give a, a brief who are you? We have your name already. What do you do at Cockroach and, and whatever the highlights are from your background that are most interesting in your mind to share? So I'm Aaron Blum. I'm the lead security engineer at Cockroach Labs, which encompasses a lot of things today. The background that's probably most interesting, I spent four years working for the Department of Defense that I can't talk a lot about, but it was some very interesting problems at scale where it, at security conferences, there's always this looming, oh, well, you know, a nation state and a Pringles can, can get you, you know, completely compromised. And looking at threats and trying to secure systems against genuinely well-funded nation actors is a very, very different problem set from what most businesses see. It was very informative and really, really hard and a lot of fun. Other than that, I've bounced around public and private sector uh, and learned a lot in both. Has your, your professional working life, has it always been in the realm of security in one way or another? It depends on which resume I give you. Um, <laughs> so a lot of the basics I picked up while doing jobs that did not have security in the title. We, you know, I've worked as part of teams that have built systems, built systems with data at scale. And as a result, I have a much better understanding of how those systems can fail naturally Never mind maliciously. And that's helped me in securing those systems going forward. That's neat. And how about you, Raphael? Um, my um, background is uh, as uh, in academic research. Uh, my specialty is computer architecture and uh, operating systems. And uh, see, uh, and before that, actually, programming language design and uh, compiler technology. And the, uh, this, this kind of this line of work has taught me that software is a construct made by people to answer certain questions, but usually any of those constructs has many more possible purposes uh, than what it was designed for. Uh, once once you look at how the tools that are created by people to make other tools work, you can see that most of the time people make tools that have many other activ uh, possible activities or, or usage than, than what they were intended for. And that's a feature, in fact, that, that enables creativity in a domain, domains that were not envisioned for initially. Um, but what really was remarkable is that in the environment where I was working as a researcher, I was, of course, surrounded by people who were um, exploring ways to use computers and softwares that were not planned for. And they were not doing that from a security perspective, at least not when I was working uh, in that environment initially. Uh, but it came to me very clearly, um, quickly, that what many people consider to be exceptional behavior, like program crashes or there is an error and so on, is actually pretty common. And when 
a program stops with an error, that doesn't mean that the universe ends. Usually there is a remaining state after that error happens. And, and that state can be looked at for troubleshooting purposes, for example, to understand where the error comes from. But in many cases in a running system, especially in a distributed uh, continuous server environment, um, when there is an error that occurs and there is a remaining state on that system afterwards, that can still be used for purposes. And depending on how the software is constructed, the remaining state might actually not be working very well anymore and cause subsequent cascading failures or perhaps interesting behavior. Now, my interest in this was not security, was just understanding this, the changing semantics of software in the face of uh, what other people consider exceptional situations, which in my opinion are absolutely not exceptional. And uh, as I was doing this kind of work, I was, of course, meeting people. And then bit by bit, I started to meet people I found very interesting that were working in the field of security, and including people explaining that all these um, uh, failures can be exploited to get access to data uh, that was not meant to be exposed or to manipulate the software into doing things that uh, the users would preferably not want to see happen. And uh, that opened open my eyes into the fact that the, those things I was just looking at from a purely, I want to say, contemplative perspective uh, had actually a purpose for certain people and also had cost functions associated like uh, what people know as risk analysis is like basically what are the un unforeseen costs that come from malfunction or misuse or use in a different direction than intended. And those costs are complicated to analyze. And so very quickly, I started to understand that there was a science behind this, or at least a couple of methodologies, and that probably there were people that were paid to do those things. And like I, I discovered security in that way, like incrementally. Um, but there is something that I do want to share, though, which is that now I work with Coco Schlabs. Um, I, I work at Coco Schlabs uh, in multiple roles, a bit like Aaron, but in a different domains and security. Um, so I, I, I coordinate certain teams, I do architecture work, I do advice for product management. But the essence of my work is really to uh, educate people to the fact that the decisions they make or the designs they take for software is going to have unintended consequences when they look at the areas that are not their primary interest. Some of the things I look at are security oriented, and then I talk to Aaron. Some of them are usability oriented and I talk to other people. And uh, it's remarkable to me that many people in my industry, including people who are recognized by their peers to be very advanced in their understanding of systems and their productivity and so on, typically have a blind eye for unintended behavior. Uh, and, and the fact that we always need to talk about this again and again and again is, is, uh, is, uh, is a reminder that security is just not optional. So that's my, my, my contribution for, for that question. That's great. Uh, you, uh, the term the happy path, right? When you're solving some kind of problem. Yes, correct. The default is I'm just going to go down the happy path. Everything works nicely. There are no side effects that I didn't expect. There's no errors. And maybe it's like the innate optimism in humans that we don't want to think about the unintended consequences and the possible negative ramifications. I do. I find it especially interesting that your your research interests, which were purely, I think you said contemplative, circled back around and it had a industry usage. So many people that go the PhD route. John did a PhD. I've pondered it for many years. Aaron, I wouldn't be surprised if you have one. I'm not sure. 
Um, but it, it's often just research-based, these big lofty ideas. And the question is, is it ever actually applicable? So really neat to hear how your, just your innate desires, kind of like Aaron was saying, pursue your interests. You realize that it has a very direct uh, application to the field of security. One, uh, one follow-up to come back to a, a comment you had earlier, Raphael. Uh, um, you were talking about the difference between problem solving and analysis. And I think you were kind of uh, touching on that again there. I was wondering if you could dive a little bit more into how you see the difference between those two skills. Uh, that's an amazing question. I, I, I can't recall the number of times I'm having that discussion with people around me. And when I was teaching, that was one of the key questions that was challenging students. Um, the way I look at it is that uh, a problem solving approach or a solution oriented approach is a methodology where steps are taken by someone until a satisfactory solution is reached. And then at the moment the satisfactory solution has been reached, the work is complete. And but that moment, the only thing that matters is an alignment between the solutions as usually built and the requirements that have been spelled out to start with. And then nobody really cares about what happens afterwards, as long as the thing continues to work as spelled out in requirements. And uh, from, a, from an intellectual perspective, uh, a solution-oriented approach will, um, will is, is constructive, like you, you start from wherever you start and then you, you add bits or remove bits until, uh, and at every step of the way you compare where you are with where you want to be, and then you, you add in the direction you want to be or you subtract to, to get to the point you need to be. And then as the moment is there, then you're done. That incremental nature of the work um, is, uh, is useful because it allows someone to ignore a lot of unnecessary considerations and parameters. And it, it, it makes it possible for someone to, to optimize their productivity to have a, a symptotic approach to their solution, whereas they can even possibly, if they're good, estimate the time to completion. Now, an analytic approach, what I call an analytic approach, is uh, where the goal is not to reach a solution or to construct something towards a certain requirement, but instead to ensure that the participants have a more complete understanding of what is going on either in a solution or in a system or in a problem sometimes. And the way you measure an uh, understanding is not by seeing whether it matches requirements, because usually when you increase understanding, you don't know what you're going to learn yet. Yeah. Uh, so what's, what happens when people study and do analysis that they are constructing a model, like a mental model of how things work or how things are going to possibly work. And then that mental model is going to be more or less detailed. And then we can evaluate it by comparing the predictions made by this model. Like you can run simulations, you can ask your models questions and see how the model using its rules would derive an answer from it. And then compare those estimations from the model's perspective with the reality you have available. Now, that is not an iterative approach. There is no asymptotic model to get there, but there is a function, an optimization function, which is like, is the model accurate for the questions we are asking it? Now, in software engineering, this kind of analysis 
is usually constrained to only the phase where we're going to choose between multiple approaches. And then we use different models to see which model is going to give us a solution at the lower cost, for example, or with a better performance. Um, but when we do system analysis, we don't look at uh, constructive approaches where it's not about comparing different approaches anymore. It's about uh, asking what would the system do in this or that situation? And in many cases, we don't actually want to try it out in practice because that might endanger the system or bring it to situations that are undesirable. So the real question is, okay, how can we uh, imagine how the system works? How do we model it in a way that is going to give us strong predictive power on hypotheticals? Like what if this component fails? Uh, what if a network request is made to that area using that protocol? Uh, what if this person is doing this and at the same time another person is doing that and they access the same field in a database together, which one wins and what is the resulting state? That system building in a mental image is an intellectually uh, very different exercise than system solution building. And that's what I call analysis. And it requires uh, three different sets of skills. One is the, uh, the, the ability to build models and, and use them, like the understanding that there is something that is a model that's separate from the physical world. And you can also ask questions that hypothetical thing. That's one skill. The second skill is um, the uh, uh, ability to choose the questions to ask the model, to not uh, be led astray in an area that is not too fruitful. So there is a lot of, that's a problem of course, with model building, because contrary to solution building, you don't have exactly a, a result endpoint in mind. So there is some kind of, of pathfinding that is its own skill. And, and the third part is communication, to explain to other people what you're finding in your in your understanding, because all this work, of course, is useless if, if it doesn't lead to new knowledge for a community of people. Like if just one person knows, it doesn't really help anyone. The company or the organization must know and the uh, communication needs to ensure that action is taken if action needs to be taken. And that means a, a very good ability to communicate the shape of the model, its abilities, the predictions, predictions it's making and so on to other people. And so I, yeah, I imagine that not, not only is that, you know, important skills to have, but that in the day to day that you also you would want to keep time for that analysis. I could see, I would maybe speak from my personal experience, I can see where the measurable, incremental, estimatable, uh, uh, constructive work can sometimes uh, push out room and space for analysis. So um, I, I can imagine, particularly for security, that it's important to kind of keep both, uh, keep time for both those, those activities. Closing tickets is antithetical to developing that model. <laughs> exactly. Would you elaborate on that? Because the folks that hopefully will be listening to this may not even know what a ticket is uh, quite yet. So um, go, go down sure. that rabbit trail for us. So uh, closing tickets is, is the idea that usually you have some, some level of ops work or operations work um, that's gonna be event driven and interrupt driven. Um, that might be, hey, we've got a you know, unexpected authorization event for your production system or uh, you know, so-and-so just got on a plane but left their laptop at the airport. And you don't control when these things are going to occur or how they're going to reach you. And in security, you will often find yourself straddling the gap between dealing with that stream of operations works, those tickets, and taking the actions that mitigate or at least reduce the harm of those events, while also trying to balance against the model building, as Rafael has, you know, eloquently explained. It can sometimes be give or take. You can sometimes find yourself too far in one and not in the other. You, know, you spend too long building a good understanding of your production systems 
but then have to deal with a Bitcoin mining incident because you didn't secure your AWS keys. So it's a balance and finding that is challenging. If you figure out how, let me know. <laughs>was that a bit of an abrupt ending? Sorry about that, but don't worry. It was just to whet your appetite because we have a part two headed your way. Tune in next time for the second half of this conversation with these two lovely folks. And in the meantime, check out their LinkedIn or their Twitter pages and give them a like or follow. You can find those links in the show notes. John and I are starting to plan out our season two of Data and Dev, and we want your feedback. If you listen to us on Spotify or just have Spotify, would you head over there and answer the poll question we have? It'll take you all of, uh, I don't know, three seconds, depending on how quick you think. Thanks. Thanks.